0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 79. Today we speak with Miles Van Pelt about the importance of the biblical languages. Christ the Center is listener supported. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org/support. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and we have a great program lined up today. I have with me Nick Batzig, who's church planter in Richmond Hill, Georgia,
1: just outside of Savannah. How are you doing, Nick? Very good. Thanks, Camden. How are you?
0: Good. I'm doing good. We also have Jeff Waddington, our regular, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringoes, New Jersey. It's great to have you back, Jeff. Oh,
2: it's good to be back.
0: We're also pleased to have back uh, now for the third time, uh, Josh Walker, who's an MDiv student at RTS Jackson. How are you doing, Josh?
3: Doing great. Thanks for having me on the program.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Well our special guest today is Dr. Miles Van Pelt, who's Associate Professor of Old Testament and the Academic Dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. It's a pleasure to have you on, Miles. Thanks for joining us.
4: Glad to be here.
0: Dr. Van Pelt has written or contributed to several books on the original languages, including many from Zondervan, Uh, many I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with, The Vocabulary Guide to Biblical Hebrew, Basics of Biblical Hebrew, a Grammar and a Workbook, and several others. And we're going to be speaking today about the importance of studying the original languages and why it's so important and so crucial for pastors and teachers to get into the texts and to know it, not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of of their students, so as we get started, Josh, would you like to uh, fire off the first question here?
3: Sure, no problem. Um, uh, Miles, what would you say is the fundamental reason why pastors should keep up the original languages um, as they've left seminary, have learned Greek and Hebrew at most um, seminaries, and as they are in the pulpit, why should they keep up their Greek and Hebrew?
4: Oh. Well. Well, I guess, you know, it depends on your view of ministry, but let's assume that they have a biblical view of ministry and their role as a pastor is a minister of the Word of God. Um, and if they are a minister of the Word of God, then they must know the languages in which that Word was written. And so they're not ministers of a translation of the Word of God. That's nowhere in the text. And so we want to be sure to, you know, prepare pastors in order to engage with and uh, be able to read those languages. Judge just from a... Um, Kind on of a principial level, to, um, because they are ministers of the Word of God, they shouldn't have the Word of God as it came to us. So they're not, um, let's say, subject to the faults of translation. But also, um, you know, there are other reasons as well. I mean, you know, in order to engage in um, difficult exegetical questions or difficult theological questions, you need the proper tools to handle that material and, uh, all of that, all of the best work and all the most rigorous work requires um, access to the original languages and then there's also you know, certain things with just regard simply to sanctification, um, a knowledge of the original languages gives you a better understanding of the biblical text and that's going to give you a better understanding of the gospel which hopefully will give you a, a life that is more transformed by that gospel and one that is affected um, for uh, Christ and his kingdom.
0: Mm. Miles, why do you think it's so difficult to keep up with the languages? Is it just simply a matter of discipline, or is it really a lack of knowing the importance of knowing them? Because once you get into pastoral ministry, you've got counseling, you're working on your sermons, all sorts of things. It's so easy to start letting your vocabulary slip or uh, letting your grammar slip. Uh, Why do you think people generally have difficulty keeping sharp on these things?
4: Right. There are at least two levels. I guess we could talk about one is they simply were not trained to keep it up in seminary or in college where they learned it. I mean, it's one thing to teach people how to parse verbs and read text. It's another thing to teach them a language in such a way that they can continue on and they can read and become proficient. Um, so maybe at the college or seminary level there's not enough cheerleading, there's not enough um there's not enough for preparing um students for what's beyond the classroom. Um, it's one, you know, I can, I can teach my students to take a quiz. That's an easy thing to do. Um, but it's a, it's a more difficult thing to teach them uh, lifestyle habits or skills that need to cr- transcend the classroom in, into the rest of their ministry. And so I think, I think some of it is our fault at the seminary college level from the professor's perspective. We just haven't thought beyond our own classroom, which is um, not the student's fault at this point. Um, At the other level, um, which now the fault is going to lie with the individual, I think, again, it's at that principial level where uh, people have lost a vision for what pastoral ministry is. Ministers of the Word of God for whom their responsibility is to bring to bear the Word of God on the people of God. And to do that, you need the languages. And so, Counseling can only be enhanced by a better knowledge of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Bible is or does come through reading the biblical text in the original languages, not from from only an exegetical perspective. I, I don't teach the languages just so you can be better at exegesis. I teach the languages so you can read the Bible devotionally in those languages, so you can be immersed in those languages, so you can know exactly what nouns and what verbs are being used in context and repeated, things that you cannot pick up in a translation when they get smoothed over for style or convenience or for, you know, to avoid repetition, something that Greek might love at that point. So um, And so I think there's a priority. Uh, you know, I think once pastors get out of the seminary context and into, the, let's say, the pulpit or ministry context, their priorities change, and maybe not always for the best. And so they have probably failed to implement kind of a system of personal discipline that would allow for that. Um, We simply don't do it. I think most people, when they come to seminary or college, you know, wherever your context is, they feel like they're holding their breath until they can get out into ministry. (laughs) Right. More time. (laughs) Right. Have more time to read Hebrew and Greek. And I don't know of anyone who has gotten out of college and seminary into the ministry and had more time. Kind of a false notion. It is. And so, um, so I encourage my students to get into the habit of reading Greek and Hebrew every day for, you know, for at least five minutes a day, and that will maintain your language. Mm. Take much. Um, you can do a verse a day, two verses a day, 15 verses a day, or you can set a time, um, for the amount of time you have. And so there are all kinds of ways to do it, but we're simply not training. We're not training men in ministry to develop skills that actually make you or change you into the pastor you need to become. We've got practical practical theology. We can tell you how to balance a budget. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You might want to edit that part.
3: (laughs) Speaking of the pastor and having um, the languages as important, let's say there's someone listening who is a pastor who has let their Greek and or Hebrew slip – What are some practical steps that they could um, implement today to get their Greek and Hebrew back up to a point where they could use it um, to prepare their sermons and to be more effective in the gospel ministry?
4: Okay, good question. Um, Well, I think the first thing you need to do, I guess it would depend on how far you've let it slip. You know, if um, you're a little bit rusty, that's one thing. But, you know, if you haven't looked at a Greek text for a couple years, you know, that's a different case. So... I think the first thing would be simply to review your grammar, so to get a textbook, either Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, whatever you're trying to review, and to simply work through that grammar as a refresher course so that you once again have the basic categories and the basic vocabulary to begin. Um, that, so that would be step one. Step two, then, you could get one of the readers that are out there. There are, um, there are Hebrew readers and there are Greek readers that um, take you from easier texts to more difficult texts, and so kind of provide a, a gradual re-entry into reading of the language. And then then the best thing to do to keep it up is simply to read your Bible every day. Read your Bible every day. And so you can begin by setting up, you know, a goal of a number of verses or a number of minutes, and then you just stick to that, and you, you set modest goals, so, um, you know, it's not that... It's not that um, difficult to carve out five or ten minutes for each language a day, and you'd be surprised at how much better you get at it, even if you spend ten minutes a day in the languages. So so go through the grammar, then get a reader, and then just start reading and never give up. I mean, that's the thing they don't teach you. There's no, there's no um, magic vitamin pill, and there's no magic book that you read that's going to make you better at the language other than reading the actual biblical text. And It'll be slow at first and then it'll take more time. The advantage that we have today, you know, we've got stuff like Accordance and Bible Works and Logos where it really minimizes um, both the time and the pain of looking up words. And there are some disadvantages to that. Your brain seems to remember the agony of looking up a word in a paper lexicon.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: It, it quicker forgets the, uh, you know, the mousing over of a word to find something. But, um, you know, you can read. with with pretty good proficiency on the computer in terms of vocabulary. And so there's really no excuse. You can always have your Bible with you electronically, and you can always have access to the meaning of words if you're unfamiliar with them. So the best way to improve your language, the best way to build your vocabulary, the best way to enjoy the language
2: is to just simply read and read and read. I'm getting back to the theoretical because as everybody... Uh, in this group knows I'm the teacher, which means I don't have to be practical. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> do you think, getting back kind of to what we were asking earlier, do you think the uh, the reason for keeping your skills active is basically the same as wa- the reason for learning the languages in the first place? So that if you're convinced uh, of the value and the importance of learning Biblical language, the original languages, that should also sustain you in, in the pastoral ministry.
4: Well, no, I think I think I think, I
2: think Did I confuse you? <laughs>
4: no, no, no. I, I'm trying to get it right. I think at the beginning, you have to be convinced at a theoretical level. That is, you don't you're you're in some sense trusting the theory right. that it's good for you. But but soon but soon after that, you've got to be shown exegetically that the languages are important. You've got to feel the practical impact of it in your ministry. Right. Um, and so at the beginning, you're working off, you know, kind of a faith in the theory. And in some sense, you know, it's governed by your doctrine of Scripture, your doctrine of inspiration, your doctrine of what you think is pastoral ministry. But then, you know, there is a time in which, you know, the, the employment of the languages in your study, in your habits, um, will, will have to bear a certain amount of fruit to convince you that this is actually, the theory is actually true. So at seminary, you're, you're working a lot off the theoretical. Right. Hopefully, pastorally, or, or the, the further you get into your studies in seminary, um, you should become more and more convinced of it. That's where, for example, we, we try and encourage students to take the languages at the beginning of their studies, so that they have time to use and improve and to see the significance. The problem is, with some seminary curriculums, that they're not always sequenced, or the, the sequence is not required, and so you couldn't, in a sense, uh, take your languages last in the curriculum if you want, and never have any practical application of them. Um, and then, it, then right. it becomes worthless.
1: Now, M- Miles, I wanted to ask a question about um, the use of Extra biblical lexicons. I mean, use of all the tools that we have to use in languages. Um, I mean, from William Henry Green's Hebrew grammar to your Hebrew grammar, there are differences. I imagine there are, um, what you would even think significant differences in, um, uh, syntax and your understanding of Hebrew. Um, I guess the same would be true even in Greek One one Greek uh, grammar with syntax to another are, are, could differ greatly. What, how are students to approach these things? Because, um, so much of our understanding of the languages depend on men like you who do the scholarship and, um, I guess my question is, how are we to approach what was written 100 years ago to what is written today in understanding, you know, the nuances and the differences in the progression in, in uh, linguistic studies?
4: Richard, you mean in terms of how you, you know, think about the grammars and the use of the grammars and stuff like that?
1: Well, yeah, trustworthiness, basically. Yeah. Who, who, how do you know who to go with if there are de- developments and supposed corrections of older grammars and, and, and sure. syntax sure. manuals?
4: Yeah, The good news is, is that the basics of the language, the basics of Greek, the basics of Hebrew, um, the basics of Aramaic, are all fundamentally intact. And let's say that 90% of the core remains the same in the last 100 years. You know, in just the term, in just the fundamental core. Because you know, in the in your first year of language study, you're really working on vocabulary acquisition. You're working on morphology, how the forms work, and so you know how they fu- yes. function, and then and and basic syntax, basic basic syntax. And um, there have been some changes in morphology. Um, very little in terms of vocabulary, you know. uh, Zeus still means horse, and apostola still means apostle. Uh, (laughs) Most of the changes are coming at the level of syntax, and not at the level of beginning syntax, but the more advanced and nuanced syntax. Now, so, there are some differences that will appear and crop up in the grammars that cover those issues of syntax. Our grammar, um, for example, Basics of Biblical Hebrew has incorporated some of those differences, especially as it pertains to the presentation of the verb system, um, specifically as it pertains to, uh, like, the cohortative, and and volitional verb forms Right. So we incorporate. But that's a very small part of the actual exercise uh, grammar. So, so in terms of the basic content, I think everything is trustworthy that's out there that's been published, otherwise the publisher wouldn't go with it. Um, what's really changing is the pedagogy how the material is presented. Yes, right. Um, And so, you know, 100 years ago, you know, the vast majority of Classics students who would be approaching Greek or Hebrew would have had Latin and other languages and would have been familiar with a lot of terminology and a lot of English grammar. They would have known Latin terms and they would have been familiar with the case systems and all kinds of things like that with uh, other classical languages. But now... um, you know, when it comes to foreign language instruction, for example, Greek or Hebrew, you know, you cannot assume uh, that the student had any training in another foreign language. Uh, right. you, you cannot assume that they have good English training. And so you've got to change uh, so much of the way in which you approach teaching the language in order for it to make sense to the student. I think of um, Weingrin's Hebrew grammar that yeah. I have on.
0: We had to use that at Westminster. Yeah. Yeah,
4: and I I love it. I've I've got a very affectionate kind of love hate relationship with with,
0: it. with all the typos. <laughs>
4: yeah, it, it drove me crazy. But at the same time, you know, it assumes that you know Latin. Yes, it does. You know, and I did not know Latin.
2: And neither did I.
4: <laughs> and so you've got to learn. You, not only do you have to learn Hebrew, but you've got to learn Hebrew through Latin terminology. Yeah. So and so it's a lot of it is we're trying to clean up that. Uh, you know, if you look at the organization of Wangensteen's grammar, you know it's just like a shotgun. You know, he just he just takes topics and shoots them everywhere. Yeah, exactly. There's no real logic. I mean, there is a there is a certain level of logic to it, but you know, you could never go back and find you know where the adjectives are in the book because they're all over the place. <laughs> uh, you know, and so one of the things we've done is we've tried to treat you know, the language a little more systematically for students. So we give English introductions, we explain all of our terms over and over again. And then we, we progress through the language logically, first in the nominal system and then the verbal system. And in our pronoun chapter, we cover all the pronouns, so you can always go back and review your pronouns. You don't have to, you know, sift through 150 pages trying to think, where was that pronoun? Yeah. So some of it's pedagogical, organizational. Some of it is it, with improvements and updates. But, um, you know, um, you know I, I guess one, I guess on the vulgar side of things, you know, Choosing a Hebrew grammar is like choosing underwear. Everyone has their preferences. <laughs> some are boxers, some are briefs, some are hang, some are BVD, and, and so the, the proliferation of grammars that is going on right now. A lot of it is just preferential in terms of pedagogy, vocabulary, terminology, things like that. Yeah. Some are trying to maintain a certain academic level. Others are trying to get down and really meet a student's need. Hmm. So, um, Pratico and I really tried to make. You know, we try. I, I call it um mactosh hebrew it's user friendly as much as possible Uh, (laughs) try to make it easy you know we we explain our terms we define our words we give in english introductions the the grammar is huge in terms of just the amount of writing that occurs because we're just trying to explain everything
0: right now you mentioned uh, pedagogy what is what is your take on quizzes Uh, we my hebrew teacher one of my hebrew teachers was trying new things and after i took the class she she switched over to um allowing students to use notes uh when they're you know doing certain quizzes and that's those sorts of things and those are for pedagogical reasons i didn't have the benefit of being able to use any of my notes when i had to take the quizzes but um, is there any work, uh, scholarly work, going on in terms of determining the best way to teach theological students the original languages? And do you have any any insights into those sorts of things and how testing can actually be used to uh, improve people's skills? Yeah,
4: there is. In fact, there there is um, there is there's plenty of research going on in that, um, both in terms of testing and in terms of teaching.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, in terms of testing. Uh, this last year, at, um, no, it was actually two years ago, two years ago, at the Evangelical Theological Society Conferences, SBL, um, the National Association of Professors of Hebrew met. And um, the actual topic was um, assessing proficiency in Biblical Hebrew. How do you actually quiz and examine and evaluate students? And um, everyone, has, everyone has their opinions and options and different ways of going at it. And uh, so there is research in that area. Um, you know, it sounds like from your experience, you you had a I don't know who your instructor was or where you had it. Mm-hmm. Probably a good thing at this point, but it sounds like the person had capitulated and just given up the notion that these people are actually going to use the language, and so let's just get them through and let them use their notes and because that's real life because they'll have their notes. But what that does that promotes an ability with the language is only at the tool level. They, they'll have enough of the language to use the tools and um, and to be, you know, they can read the commentaries, use the word study books and the lexicons, but that still makes you a second-hander in terms of the languages. You're still relying on other people's work. Mm. Um, you know, I, I tr- you know there, there is a certain amount of information you must be able to memorize in order to actually use the language with success to feel like you can read it.
0: Right. In this case, I think the notes that were allowed were um, some, some helps on, in terms of parsing weak verbs. But if you always need help parsing a weak verb, you're not going to be able to read that often, especially when you don't learn the language as a native speaker because you're not memorizing forms as individual morphemes, I think is the name. But you actually, as an English speaker or whatever your original language is, need to know how those verbs parse.
4: Um, exactly right, because weak verbs, for example, in Hebrew are over 90% of the system.
2: Yeah, that's right. You
4: only learn the strong verb so that you can learn what the weak verbs look like.
0: Yes, that's right.
4: Weak verbs are everywhere. Hmm. And even strong verbs, if you add a, uh, a prefix or a suffix to it, you know, or depending upon the... Yeah, they language,
0: often change, too. It
4: can change, too. So yes. You know, even strong ver- verbs can be weak. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if you're not comfortable with that kind of morphology, those morphological changes, you're just you're never going to enjoy, for example, Hebrew, which is a more is a language of difficult morphology. Hmm. So rather than shy away from it, there are patterns, there are principles, there are very few patterns and very few principles for the Hebrew weak verb system. And if you just know about a dozen things, you're good to go. It's just a matter of applying those things in fifty different environments.
5: Right. Right. Right.
4: But what they usually have you do is memorize a thousand exceptions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult. And that's, I think, the difference between how Bill Mounts has done his Greek grammar and uh, traditional ways. We had to use Machin at Westminster when we were learning, and I, th- I actually preferred Mounce's approach because he's more trying to teach you some basic rules up front that help you rather than make you memorize you know hundreds of paradigms and all the exceptions.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. Mounce was my... Um, he was my college Greek professor, mm. and so I had Hebrew first, and we used the, we used a combination of Weingreen and Lassore's grammar to memorize or to to learn Hebrew, which was basically paradigm memorization. Yeah. And um, and then when I had Mounts the next year for Greek, I just felt like my whole world had been reinvented in terms of language pedagogy, and and so the way in which we present the grammar, the way in which we try to approach Hebrew, even though they're two completely different languages, for me. Is highly highly affected by um, Mount's grammar and his presentation.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Miles, when you come to sections of the Hebrew Bible that are um, difficult, I guess I'm thinking like certain proverbs where um, it's clear that English translations vary so differently that the verse in the English translation is just completely different in its meaning, um, what what advice would you have for those of us who who are wrestling through more difficult portions of the Hebrew Bible, and you come to um, verses that have ambiguous words that could be taken lots of different ways?
4: Right. Um, now, are you talking about in terms of your own personal study or in the way in which you present that, for example, the Sunday school or church?
1: You know, you could answer that. Both of those questions would be good to answer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Okay.
0: What did you mean, Nick? Your language is ambiguous. Uh, I, <laughs> okay. I'm joking you know what I'm I mean. joking. You know what I mean. I know. I'm just pl- making a joke on your question, that's all. But how that's a that is a good question. How do we in our personal study, uh if we come to that sort of ambiguity, um how do we handle making making those tough decisions one and understanding the text ourselves but then two either teaching it or preaching it?
4: Right. It de- it depends to some measure on how far you're driving the train. Uh, you know, in terms of, for example, my own study, I try to read, you know, large portions of Greek and Hebrew most mornings, and in those cases, you know, I'm not concerned about getting every nuance of every possible word. I'm just trying to read for pleasure, for my own mind to enjoy the language, to absorb it, or to become less and less foreign or more native. Um, So I'm not trying to answer every question, but there are times, for example, when you're in some poetic literature, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Song of Songs, where the language that you're familiar with in terms of translation does not always match up, does not always seem like, well, that's the obvious rendering of the text if you're struggling. And so then, you know, then you can go further and try to figure out what's going on, if it's an accurate rendering or not. You could do that, you use, you know, word study books or lexicons or journal articles on that stuff. Um, but it's, it's a rigorous task. Um, sometimes you can even, um, you know, compare translations. A quick way also to do it is to look at the, the Net, you know, familiar with the Net Bible,
5: mm-hmm.
4: um, the New English Translation. And I have a copy of that, and the reason I have it is not for the translation, but for all the notes. Hmm. Um, that are, You know, if you, look at the, if you look at the actual Bible itself, you know, more than 50% of the average pages are notes linguistic notes, translation notes, um, word study notes, that kind of thing. And so that's the kind of place where you can get quickly um, access to that kind of information. Um, You can also compare it. Another good way to do it, if you're reading Hebrew, for example, um, is to compare it with the Septuagint to see what the earliest translators thought of it and how that might be different from our English translation. So another quick way to do it is to go to the Septuagint. They might have an alternative rendering or something like that, or something that would make... Sense to you as a Westerner, um, but sometimes you, you're just um, sometimes there's going to be a certain level of ambiguity, and or even worse, and there are lots of these in the Bible, um, in any translation, bad translations. Mm-hmm. Preaching and tre- if you're preaching or teaching from a translation that is not accurate, you know I think you're duty bound in some way to correct that, and we can even use the word, uh, you know, let's say. Some people would say winsomely or with love or that kind of thing, right. but it also that, that would depend upon the relationship you have with the people you're teaching. Right. If, if you know if you're a guest speaker at a church and you're there preaching, um, and, you know, and you go up in the pulpit and you say your English translation is wrong,
5: <laughs> <laughs> not very helpful.
4: It, it may well be, but you've just imperiled them. You know, they don't know what to do now. They don't have the tools to handle that. But if if you're, you know, if you've been there 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and, you know, you can build a relationship with them and just say, you know, a slightly different translation that would highlight something else might be, you know, there are ways to do it without um, imperiling them. But sometimes, you know, sometimes you can just say this this translation is wrong, you know, Um, uh, you know, and, and this is the better translation of a, a humorous example is in the book of Kings. Um, there's this, there's this phrase rendered. It's um, it's mashtin bakir in Hebrew, and it means those who urinate on the wall.
5: Hmm.
4: And in the King James version, it's those who urinate on the wall, those who urinate on the wall in every instance. And so it's about, it's about kind of the lowest possible segment of society from the king above to, you know, the homeless person who urinates on the wall, mm-hmm. um, the Lord's going to get rid of those people from a particular kingly line. Um, the King James Version renders it literally. All other translations feel like it's a little too indelicate for selling Bibles, and so they'll just say, every male, mm. something like that, instead of instead of those who urinate on the wall. Right. So one way to approach that, then, is to... Sometimes you can find a translation that didn't shy away from the, a proper rendering
0: you sometimes get some of those with with some other uh, euphemisms too don't you I'm, oh, okay. I've, I've heard of uh, one you know where it says you know my my little fingers bigger than my father's thigh uh, <laughs> that's right is a little bit yeah. of a euphemism that somebody we won't explain it but
4: uh <laughs> right and that's that's actually that would be what it says in the text um and so th- that's right those euphemisms could be explained or just that's a euphemism and everyone would get it but there are sometimes when it's just the translations are just yeah. There are sometimes they're just they're inaccurate. Right,
0: right, right. Uh, hmm. Yeah,
4: that's exactly right. Those things, you know, another euphemism is to put your hand under the thigh of someone. Yeah. You know, the thigh is not what they're talking about.
0: <laughs> um, I have another question about uh, just language development. Uh, I guess it might be called historical linguistics or something. I don't know the proper term, but. What you do have uh, in terms of our, our Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, is a living language that it's, has been written down, so I wanted to ask you if there's any impact on our study or any development in uh, scholarship uh, understanding of the Hebrew and the Greek language, because you have things like the optative in the Greek, which apparently is has been dying, and that's why you only have, I think, eight of them in the New Testament, because it had, it was an older form that's been passing away, and I assume there's the same type of thing in Hebrew. Are there new discoveries or things that that, that scholars are finding out that are helping us to understand some of this higher-level syntax based on historical development, or, or are, have most of those things been figured
5: out already?
4: Yeah, I'm not as familiar with all of the new stuff in Greek. You know, they're always talking about aspect-
5: um, yeah, yeah.
4: There's a rich there's a rich heritage, you know, with classical Greek and Koine Greek and you know how the transition between the classical and hellenistic Greek works and um you know using that study to help understand Greek, you know, I, I know some of that. In Hebrew, there certainly are. And I'm a little more familiar with the literature in that area, that's part of my specialty. Um there are diachronic studies where um You know, there's a sense of development in the language. Mm -hmm. It's like King James English to modern English, where you get a sense of some development and change in the language. There are also um, dialectical differences in Hebrew in some spots. Oh, okay. There are, you know, for example, in the northern kings and the northern judges, little dialectical peculiarities in the language that you can pick up, and it kind of gives a sense of, you know, a little bit of a flavor of the text. For example, down in the south they'll say, y'all
0: yeah we were just talking about that before the show started
4: <laughs> and in the north they'll say you all
0: yeah you guys or or yeah the worst know. part of Chicago use guys use yeah, guys youans, <laughs> <Youans>. <laughs>
5: right?
4: and so they, they, there are studies like that dialectical studies diachronic studies and comparative Semitic studies where we could learn from Ugaritic or Akkadian or other languages that are Northwest Semitic for Hebrew so you've got kind of um a triangulation, if you will, the dialectics and diachronics and comparative Semitics that can kind of improve our knowledge. And there are always, always um, things being learned to improve our understanding of the language, um, things on the verb system, uh, you know, things we've studied. Um, when we discovered Ugaritic, um, you know, about a half a few well, about, what was it, in the 1930s, so, you know, some, you know, 70 or 80 years ago, Ugaritic really helped us understand Hebrew poetry, um, better than we've ever st- understood it, and it also helped us to understand some vocabulary words that were unclear to us. And So, Akkadian has helped us to understand some vocabulary that is rare in the New, that is rare in the Old Testament, but common enough in some of the other languages to help us fill out the meaning. So, those other languages and the other regions and stuff give us a sense uh, better of what what we would call standard biblical Hebrew and how to.
5: Mm.
0: They might even help explain. I, I think I've been told like the segalit nouns and those sorts of things might have come from Ugaritic or some other language that kind of explain why uh, some of those forms look the way they do and don't match the other forms.
4: Yeah, I mean, segalit nouns are, they're kind of made-up nouns. They're, um, you know, they used to be one syllable, now they're two syllables, and there was a development that went through in terms of how Hebrew worked. Hebrew, Uh not like... um,
0: Tolerate those those, uh, consonant clusters at the
4: end. They didn't like doubly closed syllables at the end, so... Yeah. It jammed a vowel between the last two letters, and, and that's kind of the, the rough way to say it, but <laughs> saying that, you can explain that diachronically, and whenever a word inflects, like when a, a segalit noun gets a suffix, you can see its old or original form, and so it helps to explain when things are unusual The the diachronic approach can sometimes help. Hmm. So that's why it's nice, you know, when Old Testament scholars have some training in Northwest Semitic languages, or Akkadian, or Ugaritic, or... Even Egyptian. I mean, the more Semitic languages you can learn, right? It, the better you'll be with Hebrew, because you understand the family from which it comes. Huh. Like understanding, it's like knowing who your dad is or your aunt and your uncle it gives you a better sense of who you are.
1: Absolutely. How much do you work and interact with um, the Septuagint, and what thoughts do you have on that for um, for our listeners?
4: Um. It depends on what I'm working on and where I'm at in terms of what kind of attention I give to the Septuagint. Um, in terms of my own formal training, um, I've had um, some some coursework in Septuagint. My my PhD advisor, Peter Gentry, is an expert in the Septuagint, and so I've had uh, you know some training, some some formal training in Septuagint, and I um, use it, try to read from it. Um, Always use it when I'm studying or trying to exegete a text in the Old Testament. I want to go to the oldest possible commentary on the mm-hmm. Hebrew Bible, and that oldest possible commentary would be the Septuagint, because all translations are commentaries at mm-hmm. some level, or at some level to some degree. And so um, it's a very important resource. Um, the New Testament authors use the Septuagint, which makes it important. Um, but the Septuagint is not an inspired translation; it's not an authoritative translation. And we right. don't even really have the Septuagint per se. We don't right. have that original document that would have been translated, you know, from about 200 B.C. on. So we've, But it's, it's, from a historical perspective, it's terribly important from a perspective on commentary, work, and textual criticism, and worldview of the time. I mean, very, very important, and I don't think any good Old Testament scholarship can be done without... Uh, recourse to, to that document.
1: Sorry, Josh, um, I know you think it's inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, and Miles, I had one quick follow-up question. Um, I have benefited greatly from TDNT at Kittle, and I've often heard criticisms, even from my own Greek professor and others, um, as to just the untrustworthiness of the TDNT, and yet a, a lot of the things I've studied in there... I've really benefited from. Can you just talk briefly about um, that as a resource, and maybe pitfalls to avoid, and things that maybe could be helpful with it?
4: Yeah, sure. Just quickly, the theological dictionaries are great, but they do have their problems. Um, and James Barr, of course, has written famously on some of these problems. If you're interested in that, but the, the, so here's the thing: the 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 word study movement grew kind of out of a biblical theological movement where they thought if they could really understand the nature of these words, it might give us, you know, some kind of additional esoteric mystical meaning. And then what happened is um, students would take that information and import it all over the place in context that didn't necessarily apply to. And I think what people are cautioning against is, you know, word study fallacies and word fallacies is when words have meaning only in their context. And so you must take the meaning of the word in its context to arrive at an accurate understanding. And I think some of the fallacies or some of the the problems that can be created with the word study books is that you study a word outside of its context, you arrive at an abstracted meaning, and then you import that meaning into a context it was not originally intended for. And so you need word plus context for understanding And so you've got to you've got to get both of those. Now those word study books, some of them do great work in context. I think, for example, Zondervan's New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis—they've really done more work there in terms of context to avoid a lot of those fallacies. Um, And so you just have to be careful in how you employ it. You just you can't take the meaning of an individual word in one location contextually and import that everywhere. It may have some overlap. It may have significance. It may have some some nuancing, but you really need the second factor. The second factor is just importance, the context in which it occurs. So, I think that's I think that's what you're looking for. Just you just can't go wild with the, the meaning of a word in every context. Context, you know, if if you're in Proverbs and you're talking about a fool, that's one thing, but if you're if you're in the Pentateuch and you're talking about a fool, that may be a completely different thing. Right. And, you know, legal literature versus wisdom literature versus, you know, even, um, you know, epic literature. You just have to be careful where you're at and what context you're in.
2: I wanted to say a hearty amen to your encouraging uh, pastors to do at least, you know, like five minutes a day. Uh, I've been doing that ever since when, and it just keeps, it's, it's better than going for a month and then doing a, a couple of hours, you know. you. That's right. St- uh, I, I was. I figured that uh, regularity and consistency uh, is the name of the game.
4: Yeah, I, I completely agree. In fact, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I guess I should have bought, brought them with me. But if you read, if you know, if you can get to the point where you can read 20 verses of Greek a day, and on the computer, that's not a lot. You can do that in 15 minutes. If you get, you know, if you just, you may, hmm. may not start out that way, but you can get there. In less than a year, you can get there. But if you can read 20 verses a day, you can read through the New Testament every two years.
2: Wow! Yeah, that's, that's good. That's
4: just devotionally, as a pastor, for your own edification, for your right. own sanctification, for your own hedonism.
2: Right. Well, one of the Basically? things. Go ahead. Now, as you say, one of the, the benefits that for myself is that it uh, working through the original languages slows me down where there, there yeah. might be a tendency uh, reading the English for my mind to wander. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas I, where I'm reading the Greek or the Hebrew, uh, I'm, I'm paying attention, or I'm, I think I'm paying attention to the, to the details of the language, uh, which means, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to catch more of it. <laughs> That's
4: exactly right. Yeah, I agree. It's, like, it's the difference between you know flying over the Appalachian Mountains and walking through them. Right, you know, one of them will allow you to um, enjoy the landscape at a different level. That's exactly right.
1: I was going to ask if, at some point, Miles, you could um, either email to us or post it on one of our blogs a list of Hebrew um, commentaries that you find to be very helpful in exegetical matters um, on particular books of the Old Testament. I don't know that there's a whole lot um, of uh, helpful list out there. Maybe you do. You could tell us about.
4: Well, there are different listings. Um, you know, Trimper Longman, for example,
1: mm-hmm.
4: I think has a listing of Old Testament commentaries, and maybe Fee has a listing of New Testament commentaries.
0: It's Carson, I think. D.A. Carson. Carson, yeah.
5: yeah.
4: And there's also, um, uh, one of my good colleagues, Derek Thomas,
5: mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: has a, a book called The Essential Commentaries for a Preacher's Library. Oh. And he does a good job of, um, kind of, um, has, he, he categorizes them, you know, these are essential, these are recommendations, this is, this is you know, just consider if you've got extra money and you don't want to send it to me kind of thing. And so um, that's it's helpful, especially from a pastoral point of view. But look, here's the thing. If you're, if you're first in the languages and you're good at the languages and you've spent time in the languages, commentaries are a waste of time and money to, to some degree. Not, you know... You don't need them all the time. I mean, basically, commentators are doing the work you should be doing, and they, they can become pastoral crutches. Um, and so, you know, to be honest, there are not that many good commentaries out there, in my opinion, that are really wrestling with the, the meaning of the original text and trying to give help at that level. But usually they're agenda-driven and not very good at um, articulating how the languages work and help bring that stuff to pass.
5: Hmm.
4: Having said that, I'm not saying that you should never have commentaries. Sh- Commentary—it just depends on. Uh, well, the way in which I tell my students to work with commentaries is as conversation partners, not as crutches. Now, so so what that does is it controls where you engage the commentaries in your study process. For me, commentary work is at the very end if you've got time. Right. You, con- you consult them. You, you've done all of your work. You've done your exegesis. You've looked up the words. You've done word studies, you've swept bullets over the structure of the text, you feel like you've arrived at the author's original intent and that you can communicate that original intent. And now you want to go and read a commentary or two or three to have a conversation with others who have done the same work to to see have, have they caught something I haven't, have they said something in a better way. But at that point, you're not relying on them as crutches. You're not saying, I can't do the work, I won't do the work. You've done the work, and you're engaging them. You're not, in some sense, stealing from them. Uh, And so in terms of suggestions, you know, always get a good historical commentary, so something like Calvin or Luther or Owen, you know, someone from the past. Um, Then get a good, solid, modern, conservative commentary where you've got someone who's using the languages. So someone like, you know, Trimper Longman or Gordon Winham or... Uh, things like that in the Old Testament, um, Golden Gay for Psalms, and and then get um, a, a wacky, crazy liberal, um, so that you can kind of understand uh, what the world is saying and how they're deconstructing the, the meaning of this text, so that you can have some sense of you know, some sense of uh, apologetic for that as you study the text. So you're not, in some sense, reading to get quotes or reading to quote people all the time for some false sense of authority. You're, what you're trying to do is to make sure you've you You've said it the best you can, and you've cut all the issues, and that you're answering the world's questions
0: mm-hmm. miles one one final question before we get moving uh where is what is the future of Hebrew and Greek studies? what's the cutting edge and what what kind of things should we look for in the future, if anything
4: Well you know that's a great question um, you know and i I don't know I mean I'm certainly not a prophet um but I, but let me just mention some trends <laughs> okay um i think um there is an enormous resurgence of interest in the biblical languages um i see pastors um I, i'm sorry i've seen more and more publishers publishing hebrew and greek grammars than ever before um, even in the last 10 years over 10 new hebrew grammars have come out
0: wow oh i had no idea <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I also see, more than ever, um, studies coming out um, on very discrete issues in biblical Hebrew. For example, I'm looking at books on my desk, you know, Semitic noun patterns, or markedness in Canaanite Hebrew verbs, or I'm reading a book right now on the infinitive absolute in Hebrew. Uh, and I'm seeing more and more of this kind of interest at both the the generic introductory level, and at the advanced level, both in Hebrew and in Greek. And so I feel like there's a real resurgence of interest at at the kind of the academic professional level, which I think is a response to a resurgence of interest in the meaning of the biblical text for pastoral ministry. Um, You know, we um, the evangelical world kind of reacted negatively to higher criticism of the um, late 19th and 20th, early 20th, mid-20th centuries Where those guys were taking the Bible apart and no longer had any meaning for us, so we're just going to read it devotionally, whatever it means to me, that's what it means to me, kind of approach. And I think we're finding that approach, that approach is just as bankrupt as the higher critical approach. And we're trying to get back to a more, a reformed way of thinking of the 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 essential nature of the biblical text, the unity of the biblical text, that's important for our lives. And so I see actually, um, I see a, a resurgence of biblical languages coming. Um, as I see the resources coming, um, but I see very little, I, I see seminaries as the last people to actually recognize this thing. I think seminaries, most seminaries that I interact with, um, even to some degree my own seminary, uh, is still working in the 1960s in terms of biblical worldview, the place of the language and the role of the language and what pastoral ministry is. Yeah. And so uh, I think there's hope. But, you know, seminaries, you know, seminaries are always slow on the go, so they'll catch up. Um, But, you know, we try and be as much on the cutting edge as we can, but there are all kinds of complicated factors that uh, relate to how seminaries are run and who runs them and stuff like that and what we do. So, you know, faculty are doing their best, um, make amends. And, for example, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, you know, You know, I'm a language zealot, so I'm here, you know, chanting the the gospel.
5: Oh, yeah.
4: And we're, you know, lighting it on fire here and bringing the heat, Uh, and we're just trying to hope, we're we're hoping that that will spread and that will continue to grow.
0: We hope so, too, and we hope this interview, as it gets published, uh, does spread the heat, as you say, uh, to those people, and that we hope that it kindles a desire for some people to pick up their dusty grammars and maybe their dusty Bibles and get back into the original languages for not only for their own edification, but for the edification of their flock. Well, miles, thank you so much for joining us. We, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and we're glad we were able to do this one. This, this wasn't our usual type of discussion. So we appreciate your time.
4: (laughs) I appreciate you inviting me to be on.
0: Yeah, it's been great. I want uh, to let everyone know, of course, uh, Dr. Van Pelt has several books out there. You can pick up the vocabulary guide to biblical Hebrew, uh, There's the basics of Biblical Hebrew, a grammar, and a workbook, and all sorts of other things available from uh, Zondervan. You can find those at uh, your Reformed bookstore. You can also find more information about us and our other programs at reformedforum.org. We have an archive there, and you can listen to all of our older programs. Uh, And you can also visit Feeding on Christ. I don't want to forget that, feedingonchrist.com, and Josh Walker's blog, Bring the Books. Uh, So there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of places to go and visit, a lot of things to read. We want to thank you for listening, for spending your time with us this afternoon, and we hope you'll join us again on Christ the Center.